0: Well, hello, and welcome to Ridge Church Online. My name is Dan. I'm so glad that you're joining us. And I hope that over the last couple of weeks, um, that as you've gotten to experience um, what everyone in the Lower Mainland longs for, and that is spring. The sun has started to shine. It is light past 2.30 p.m. in the afternoon, and it feels like life is getting back normal. I know there's been so many different things that um, Jalisa, my wife, and I have kind of experienced in the last little bit that have felt normal again. And if you don't know me, I am Dan and I'm the youth and young adults pastor here. And one of the things that feels normal is we had one of our first young adults nights we've had in a really long time this last Sunday. And and, and on it, we had planned this night and it was all around this idea of kind of reconnecting and getting together with the people who are young adults in our church and in our ministry. And it was a great night. We had planned it. We were having chicken wings. We were hanging out. But, But what we didn't think about when we planned it is that the Sunday that we planned this event on um, landed on the same Sunday as the Oscars, the Academy Awards. So if you're a film buff that might make you go crazy that we would plan an event on the same night as that. But as with most of the world, um, we weren't all that interested in the Oscars because none of us have actually seen any of the movies. But that's all right. We had planned it and we were missing a couple people who really wanted to watch. Um, We still gathered for this event. Um, And then partway through, I got this text from someone who wasn't at the event and and I opened my phone. and, And if you know anything, if you've opened the news once this week, if you've gone on social media, you've seen countless memes and jokes and opinions and takes about this event, you know that even though no one really cares about the Oscars anymore, this year everyone cares about one thing that happened at the Oscars. And, And if you haven't happened to see it yet, well, something crazy happened. Will Smith, a famous actor who ended up winning Best Actor that very night, Heard a very inappropriate and unkind joke made at his wife's expense and went on stage and out of nowhere slapped Chris Rock, a comedian, across the face, um, yelled at him, swore at him, was angry. It was this incredible, um, not incredible, this awful moment that, that was just painful and weird and people didn't know what to do. And, and midway through this Young Adults Night, I'm not watching the Oscars. I don't know what's going on. I haven't watched most of the movies. And I received this text at one point. And when you're running an event, you, you check your texts right? Because who knows? Something's going on. Somebody needs to be let into the building. Who knows? So I check my text and and I get maybe one of the weirder texts I've ever received. It just says, Will Smith just slapped somebody. Um, which is a weird text to receive, but it, it piques your curiosity. And so all of a sudden, I was finding this clip of, of Will Smith going and hitting Chris Rock. And and before I knew it, the table that I had been sitting at and the people that I had been visiting with, we ended up um, kind of huddled around watching it. And, and the first thought that we all had when we heard this happened was, well, this is staged. Right? This is Hollywood. There's no way that really happened. There's no way someone just got angry and went up and hit somebody across the face. But then we watched it, and you've probably watched the clip too, and you've realized it's like jarring when you see it happen because violence is jarring, right? Whether we feel it's justified or not, and I'm not making any comment on that, violence is jarring. Like, you can tell when you watch that clip, there's an intent to hurt. It's coming out of the blue. It's not fake or staged. It's someone hitting someone, seeking to cause them damage and pain. And and what's jarring about it is, is that you and I live in a country. We live in an era of human history. We live in a place in the globe. And for many of us, we live in a tax bracket where violence is not something we have to deal with on a regular basis. Violence is unfamiliar. Violence is jarring, and we don't really know what to deal with it. We'll watch shows with tons of violence. We'll watch movies with tons of violence. But when it looks real, when there's real violence that we see, we don't know what to do about it. It jars us. And so things as small as a celebrity slapping another celebrity, or things as big as... as big as world stage events, they, they throw us a little bit. I'm sure like me, you've experienced um, the, the kind of pain and the, the, the understanding and the fear and the stress and the anxiety around the news that we've seen out of Europe in the last number of weeks and months. I remember we were at youth when the news alert came out that um, Russia was going to invade Ukraine. And I remember this feeling of not really knowing what to do with that information, almost as if the reality that someone, or that a country was going to drop bombs on another country was, was something that I just didn't know how to comprehend. That was something that happened in the 1940s, and the 1910s, not now, not in 2022. And that's what all the discourse said. How could this happen in 2022? 2022, we don't have a context for anger, and so it jars us. Violence shocks us awake from the low-grade boredom many of us live our lives in. We see an image or a video clip. We see photos from a place like Ukraine. We see photos from places that are far from where we live or very close to where we live, and we, we don't know what to do with it. We hear the story of someone who's faced real violence someone who's had to flee for their lives, for their family's safety, because their lives were at risk, and we just don't know how to process it. But after some time, we start to focus on the things that we put most of our attention on. Even though the violence has shocked us awake to the things that don't really matter in life, over time and through advertisements and social media and a little bit of online shopping, we get our minds off those things. We make some memes about someone hitting someone else, or we um, focus more on when our Amazon order is going to get there, or we go to the mall for some retail therapy or whatever it may be. We, we do these things and we push out the violence and the things we don't want to consider. And we live with a low-grade anxiety. We live with this constant fear and not really knowing what to do with that information. We'll complain about gas prices, but we don't really want to think about some of the factors at play that might affect them because that's just too stressful. Well, the problem, as I see it, and what I've realized in the last decade or so that I've sought to follow Jesus with my whole life, is that I actually have an ability to do the very same thing with the most violent event in human history, the cross of Jesus. We're in this series called Passion, and we're looking at the sufferings of Jesus, or as we've called them, the holy sufferings of Jesus, these sufferings that are set apart. They are different from any other sufferings, not just because of how brutal they were, but because of their purpose. And what I've realized in my own heart is that we and I can take this symbol that is the cross, and we know the cross, right? It's on the outside of our fancy new building. It's on the inside of our sanctuary to be seen. We sing about it in our songs. Many of us wear necklaces or jewelry or clothing with the image of the cross on it. We have wall art in our homes. We have tattoos of it on our bodies, whatever it may be. The cross is this incredibly important thing. But We all know deep down, right? It's a Roman torture device. That's what the cross was. It's something that historians called the most despicable device known to mankind and common people in the era that crosses were used to execute criminals. It was called a symbol. Pardon me, it was called some a symbol of someone who was cursed by God. Anyone who would die by a cross was clearly not loved, not cared for, not valued. They were cursed. It was the most brutal way in which a person could be killed. The cross was a level of violence that most of us cannot fathom so much that the word excruciate that we use only for the most painful experiences that we see, whether emotional or physical, excruciating is this descriptive word we use. It comes from the word cross. The Latin excruciate means tormented, It's not just pain. It's not just a hit or a slight level of um, not being okay. It's not just uncomfortable. It doesn't just hurt. It's torment. And that is where the word cross comes from, excruciating pain. And for many of us, we've settled for the cross as a symbol of a reality that's happened, but we don't really want to process the reality of that reality that has happened. Uh, a thing we know some songs about and, and we have all the things and we think about the cross and we can talk about the cross and we love to use the word cross, but, but we don't want to step back and consider the violence of the cross. We, but we think about it as something beautiful and good and as a picture of what has set us free in Jesus, but we avoid the reality that our modern minds don't want to accept because it's violent. It's violent. And that is the reality that we cannot get to the joy of resurrection without the pain of crucifixion. And so today we're going to look at the pain of crucifixion. We're going to look at the suffering of Jesus in Mark chapter 15. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there or read behind me on the screen. We're going to consider how Jesus suffered and not only that Jesus suffered, but why Because we need to understand the reason behind it. It can't just be senseless or it doesn't make sense at all. So let's carry on in our series. And as the old hymn puts it, let us survey that wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Here's what it says in Mark 15, starting in verse 16, immediately after Jesus's trial before Pilate. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together a whole battalion they clothed him in a purple cloak and they twisted together crowns of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him enough, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put his own clothes back on him and they led him out to crucify him. So here we find Jesus. And just as Pilate has permitted and the religious leaders have been hoping and planning for, Jesus will be led away. There is no escape. There is no slipping out of the crowd. There is no one to defend or protect Jesus in this moment. And what we find is a group of Roman soldiers who most likely would not have known Jesus who most likely would not have known much about Jesus. These were Romans, not Jews. They weren't around the Jewish circles in the same way. They might have heard about him, heard a little bit about this Jewish leader and he's talking about this stuff. But, but here we find them and they are more than happy to make sure that this self-righteous Jew gets what he deserves. They beat him and they mock him They place a robe on him and fit him with a crown of thorns that would have dug into his head, causing bleeding down his face and back. They mocked him with jeers and chants, pretending to bow before the king of the Jews. Remember, the Romans were ruling over the Jews. They were not big fans. They were not celebrating this group of people, this religious sect who seemed to always be pushing back against them, always looking for a way to not allow Rome to rule over them. And they spit on him and they struck him using a whip that likely had bits of bone or glass or rocks in order to do more damage to Jesus's back. And so while they mock him with a phony crown and a false robe, they beat him. They strike him. They break him down. And I can't help but wonder what was going on in the heart of those Roman soldiers. One theologian asks, how angry must these men have been with their own lives to do this to a man they likely didn't even know? This was more than just fulfilling orders. This was more than just, well, I'm just doing what I'm told. I'm just doing my job. No, to these soldiers, it was a game. It was a joke. It was someone to take out their anger and their frustrations and their bitterness on. It was someone to lay their spit and their blows on because they had to deal with their anger and their bitterness and let it out on someone else. And this, of course, is just one account of the crucifixion of Jesus across the four Gospels. And we see that Mark, as he always seems to, it's the shortest Gospel narrative, isn't really getting all that emotional in his language, right? He, he isn't putting much flair into his writing, but he's, he's just kind of accounting the facts He's not adding a lot of emotion to it, which Mark seems to always do. This is what happened. This is what happened next. This is what was said. This is what was done. But but what you'll notice if you read this passage again is what Mark seems to be more aware of is not just the physical suffering of Jesus, which is incredibly present, but the emotional suffering of Jesus. He doesn't just say that, that Jesus is beaten and spit on. He talks about how Jesus is mocked talks about how he is made fun of, how they pretend to worship him, how they mock and and destroy him emotionally, And, and all that disgrace could hold just as much, if not more, sting than any than that of a whip. And you know this. You know that words have this power. You know that it's possible for words to hurt and wound and break down and crush in a way that a fist never could. You know what that's like. Chances are many of you watching this or listening to this online have moments in your life where things have been spoken to you or spoken over you that have wounded you for a lifetime. Maybe you had a parent who spoke over you that you were not enough. Maybe you had someone who was a boss or a teacher or someone in authority over you who used that position and spoke things to you that crushed you that told you you were an idiot, that told you you weren't good enough, that made you feel small and stupid and belittled. Maybe it's a friend who betrayed you, who says, I never want to see you again. Maybe it's a spouse who said, I never want to see you again. Maybe you know the heartbreak of a child you're estranged from who doesn't want to be connected to you. And I remember distinctly when I was a kid this moment When I was having an argument with my parents, I don't even remember about what, and I screamed at the top of my lungs, I hate you, I hate you. And I remember even at 10 years old seeing the brokenness on my mom's face to hear this child who she loved scream that he hated her. Words have immense power. Proverbs tells us that the tongue has the power of life and death, that old phrase as it goes, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never never hurt me. That's garbage. Words can crush your soul. And what we need to understand about Jesus' crucifixion is it wasn't just physical. It wasn't just something that Jesus um, emotionally disconnected from. It wasn't just something that Jesus numbed himself to and, and used his power as God to kind of get rid of the pain, get rid of the suffering. And, and this is what I need to do to save people, so I'll do it, but, but like, let's just emotionally disconnect from it. No, this is an emotional crucifixion as much as it's a physical one. What we need to understand is that the suffering Jesus went through was all-encompassing. It was not simply physical. It was right down to his heart and to his soul. And that suffering carries on. Here's what it says, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgatha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Jesus would not be numbed to this experience. And they crucified him. And they divided garments among them. They cast lots for them to decide which each should take so they could have his clothes. And it was the third hour when they crucified him and the inscription of the charge against Jesus read, the King of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided or mocked him. They wagged their heads and said, you who thought you could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, why don't you save yourself? Why don't you come down from the cross? So also the chief priests and scribes mocked him to one another. They, they stood off to the side and they snickered among themselves saying he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with Jesus also reviled him. Everyone mocks him. The religious leaders, the people passing by even the thieves beside him on the cross. The mockery continues along with the pain, and, and Jesus, most likely under the pain of his beat down at the hands of the Roman soldiers already broken, already destroyed, ends up needing the help of Simon, a random passerby on his way to the Passover in order to carry the beam of his cross that would end up being the place where Jesus would die. He, he is brought to this place, the place of the skull, Golgotha, and nails would have been spiked through his wrists in order to hold him there. He was propped up in order to suffer, in order that he had to press his body up in order to breathe and cause himself even more suffering. The cross was the most painful way imaginable, in the most public way available, and in the most disgraceful way that could be designed in order to show everyone watching the utter defeat of this so-called King of the Jews. The cross was not just about causing a person physical pain, it was about showing everyone around the utter failure that they were in their mission. Whether that mission was to be a rebel, to reject Roman authorities. It it was about showing everyone that that Rome could not be stopped, that whoever this person was did not have the power that they claimed to have. And the people mock him. The people mock Jesus. They, They challenge him to save himself. Why? Because what Messiah would die this way? What savior would die this way? What king would die this way? Who is this man, Jesus? to walk around saying he had the authority to forgive sins and set people free from their shame. And yet here he is just like anyone else who rejected Rome, who rejected the leaders, strung up on a cross to suffer and die. And we know the cross is for slaves, it's for criminals, It's for murderers and scum, Jew and Gentile alike would have seen this man on the cross as yet another failed Messiah, yet another phony, yet another who promised something and could not deliver only to be crushed and destroyed in humiliation before the people. It's why Paul later on in the New Testament would write that this death, the way that Jesus died, which is so central to our faith, is actually a stumbling block for the Jews, as they try to believe in this and its foolishness to the rest of the world, 1 Corinthians tells us this. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We don't just preach Jesus. We preach the Jesus who suffered on a Roman cross. And then what does Paul say? A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. To the Jews who had long awaited a Messiah and a Savior. How could the man bloodied, beaten, and being killed be that man? How could it be that the one who was destroyed in the most disgraceful and disgusting way possible could be the savior and the king that they had longed for? And for the Gentiles, for everyone else, that just makes no sense. How is the hero of your faith, how is the savior in your faith going to be destroyed in this way? That doesn't make sense. And that's true even up to this day. It just doesn't make sense So we ask these questions, and they're fair questions to ask when we read this passage. Why would God do this to his own son? If Jesus is really God's son, why is this the way that God is going to redeem the world? Why, Why would Jesus, if he's got all the power, if he's got all the glory, if he's a member of the Trinity, why is he letting this happen to himself? Why isn't he getting off the cross? Why is this moment? What Christians point to is the center of human history. And is God just a divine child abuser? Is God just destroying Jesus? And and maybe it deals with sin. Maybe it does something for Christians, but but it's kind of messed up that that God would destroy Jesus this way. Why, Why would that be the way in which people are saved? Well, I think it's Peter who actually answers this question best. You know Peter. The friend of Jesus, the disciple of Jesus, the one who only moments before had denied and cursed at even knowing Jesus's name. Well, if you know the rest of Peter's story, you know that Peter is restored to relationship with God through what Jesus has done on the cross. And he would go on in one of his letters that he wrote to a church to say these words about his friend and his Lord, Jesus. Here's what it says in 1 Peter 2. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted he did not insult in return when he suffered he did not threaten but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly he himself speaking of Jesus has bore our sins in his body on that tree, another term for the cross. So that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Jesus himself bore our sins or carried our sins in his body on that cross. This is a theological concept, uh, an idea in Christian theology that we find in the Bible, and it's a big word that you may or may not be familiar with, and that's okay. It's called propitiation. And you'll probably see it depending on your version in your Bible, and, it, and it's kind of a weird word, but, but what's important that you understand is what propitiation is, It is about an exchange, propitiation is not ignoring sin for the sake of love because then God wouldn't be good, right? If God looked at the sin and the brokenness and what's wrong in the world and just said, yeah, whatever, no big deal, then we know he wouldn't be good. We don't want a God like that. That doesn't make logical sense. There has to be justice. It's built into us as image bearers of God that we long for what's wrong to be made right for those who have been hurt to be made to pay for that hurt. What propitiation is, what it does equal is love because sin has been properly dealt with. It's not just turning the other way. It's not just ignoring what's blatantly there. It's saying, okay, the cost has been paid. The the debt has been given. There is a solution to this problem. What's wrong has been made right. The guilty has been punished. And what's important for you and I to understand as a Christian for a long time, or if you're just exploring faith for the first time, is you cannot understand the cross unless we realize that all people, including you and including me, are guilty. You can't understand the cross. It's just madness we feel uncomfortable with this, don't we? We feel uncomfortable with the word guilt. Be- because in the world that we live in, we, we don't want to feel guilt. The-, the values of the age that we live in tell us really clearly. Live your truth. You do you. Don't let anyone make you feel bad. Do what's right for you. Anyone that tries to make you feel guilty is wrong and just ignore them. You shouldn't have to feel guilt at any time time guilt is bad it must be fleed from at all costs but as one pastor noted he said I will grant that inordinate feelings of guilt are pathological that is unhealthy right if you feel guilty all the time that's not what God desires for you that's not healthy that's not right you should not only feel guilt at all times but I would like you to consider that in our modern age that to feel no guilt, is much more pathological. To feel no guilt, no regret, no shame when we wrong or hurt people that we care about or people that we don't care about. When we have done something wrong and we wanna hide it, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, we wanna cover ourselves and run away and be alone and isolate and disconnect from relationship because we know we've done something we ought not to have done. To remove all that guilt and say, I don't care, I am who I am, I can do whatever I want and you can't tell me different is a much more unhealthy and dangerous place to be. But the beauty of the cross is not simply that Jesus has done a nice thing for us. It is not simply that Jesus has said, I don't care about your sin, I'm not worried about it, I don't think your sin matters. No, your sin matters and there is a cost. Jesus has not ignored the reality of brokenness and sin in the world and in us, but he has, in the most beautiful act of friendship in all of human history, traded his perfect life in exchange for our sinful life. This is this idea that we believe in here called substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary. Jesus is our substitute. All the guilt that we have, Jesus took to the tree. Jesus took to the cross. He takes our sin, we receive Christ's righteousness and atonement, substitutionary atonement or at-one-ment. What atonement was, was about a reconciled relationship. To make atonement wasn't just to say, you're sorry. It wasn't just to say, let's get past that. It was to reconcile the relationship and to make right the bonds between God and man. But the question remains, how can God justify us? How can God make us right, make us clean, but also remain just? How can God make things right? without simply ignoring the brokenness, ignoring the sin in the world? How can you and I receive forgiveness without ourselves giving a payment of debt? How can you and I receive mercy without God simply ignoring or pretending to look the other way when it comes to sin, which would make him not a good God? Well, Romans 5 tells us exactly that. Romans 5 verse 6, For while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what many across the last few hundred years have called the great exchange the great exchange where we receive Christ's goodness and righteousness and standing as God's children and he receives our sin and our punishment and he takes it to the cross and his suffering there would pay the price for our sins. Here's how John Calvin, the reformer describes it. This, speaking of the cross, is the wondrous exchange made by his boundless goodness. Having become with us the Son of Man, he has made us with himself sons of God. By his own descent to earth, he has prepared for our ascent to heaven. Having received our mortality, he has bestowed us his immortality. Having undertaken our weakness, he has, been, he has made us strong in his strength. Having submitted to our poverty, he has transferred us riches having taken upon himself the burden of unrighteousness in which we were oppressed, he has clothed us in his righteousness. This is how Christianity is different from other faith views. This is what sets Christianity apart as a worldview in our culture. In most other religious views and in in how they look at their messiahs, their saviors, the, the central characters, you look at how their lives ends, it's in peace and harmony. That their final words are often an invitation, an invitation for people to follow them. Here's how you ought to live. Here's what you need to do. And you too could experience nirvana. You too could make it to heaven someday. You too could be good enough for God. You too could be a holy and righteous person. And yet here is Jesus, the author and central character of our faith, dying not in peace and harmony, but bloodied and beaten on a cross. Scott Saul, as a pastor, makes this observation. He said, Buddha's last words were strive without ceasing. But Jesus's last words were, it is finished. Give me Jesus. My friends, if you are sick and tired of striving to be good enough, if you are buried under the weight of attempting to prove to God that you are worthy of his love, If you are exhausted of a life hustling as hard as you can to prove that your life matters and has a purpose, if you are overwhelmed by all that you cannot solve in yourself, the sins and the guilt and the shame, the things you do that you wish you didn't, the habits you had that you just can't break, the addictions that control you, the ways you blow up, these things that control your life, What I want you to know today is that Jesus is proclaimed on the cross over your life. It is finished. You do not need to earn God's love, God's love has already been displayed for you in Christ on the cross, and he has declared that it is finished. There is no earning to be done. We are saved by what Jesus has done. You can't earn it. You don't earn it because the work of the cross proclaims a banner over you that you have been made a child of God. And this is how Jesus is different from any other pathway to true life. Jesus gives up, in his words, his life as a ransom for many. Jesus lays down willingly his life for you and for me that we might be made right before God. I love how Paul describes it in his letter to the Colossians in uh, chapter 2, verse thirteen. Jesus has erased the certificate of our debt with his obligations that was against us and opposed to us. He has erased our debt, all your sin, all your shame, everything you've ever done wrong, past, present, and future. He has erased it. How? Second part of the verse. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. It was not just our Savior who was pinned to that cross. It was the sins of the world that beat down on him. He took it there. Jesus has nailed our sins, your sins, to the cross, every single one, past, present, future, the sins that are public that you are ashamed of, that you are embarrassed of, the sins you have in your life right now that you are hiding and pretending like no one knows, but God is well aware of. Jesus has died for that. He has laid his life down for every single one. That is what we believe as Christians. Jesus took our place. He had God's wrath poured out on him that we might be saved. But is that all the cross is? Is that all Jesus is? Jesus, just another lamb and a better lamb, but really just a scapegoat for our sin? Really just a barrier between an angry God up there in heaven and us? Really just a get out of jail or get out of hell free card? Is that all Jesus is? A quick swap, a a quick title to say I've prayed a prayer or I believe the right thing so I get to go to heaven when I die. God and I are okay because Jesus died and so I don't have to worry about anything else in my life. Well, it can't simply be that. Or we'll settle for a version of Christianity that can be boiled down to one decision or a specific prayer that makes sure we'll be okay when we die. We'll boil it down to, did you say the right words? Do you have the right thought in your mind? Do you have the right intellectual understanding of Jesus? To come and understand what Jesus has done is not simply an intellectual decision to believe. It is that, but it is also more than that. While much of the Christianity in the last several decades, particularly in the Western world, has emphasized a personal decision for you and I to accept Christ is our savior, which I believe is a beautiful and important thing. And many of you and myself, I have a moment where I accepted Christ as my savior, where Jesus saved me, where I came to know by the illumination of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had died in my place and rose again. And that's what would restore me to relationship with God. But the reality of the gospel that we believe is far beyond theological acceptance of a doctrine. Jesus is not a ticket to heaven. And he is not fire insurance from hell. Jesus allows us to be united eternally with the Father. Jesus frees us from the burden and the punishment of hell. But that is not all Jesus is. Because if that is all Jesus is, he's not beautiful. He's not worth following. He's just a scapegoat. He's just something to protect me from an angry God. N.T. Wright. Uh, an author who's written at length about the nature of Christ's death in his really brilliant book, The Day the Revolution Began, which I think is a beautiful way of describing Good Friday, reflects that when Jesus is nothing more than a divine trade-off because of how much God is angry, we've rewritten John 16 to say, for God so hated the world that he killed his only son. God's so angry and mean and mad and he's going to just destroy the world. And if it wasn't for Jesus we'd be destroyed. If it wasn't for Jesus, God just takes out all his anger and his wrath and just beats down on Jesus. He just destroys him. But the reality is we see it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is God is not giddy about punishment. God does not sit there wringing his hands, hoping he can destroy something and he would destroy us, but I guess I'll destroy Jesus. And, oh, these humans are so messed up, but I guess I'll destroy Jesus because that's what I'm supposed to do because I'm God. No, God's wrath is not like yours and mine. God doesn't have these personal grudges where he gets angry and he wants to make sure people pay. No, God's wrath is about his justice. God's wrath is about his perfect holiness saying, justice must be done. The world is meant to be a certain way and the brokenness in it cannot stand. God does not get giddy about it. It is about justice. The suffering and the death of Jesus is an act that deals rightly um, with the wrath of God. It, It is an act in which Jesus carries our sin to the cross. That is a truth about what the cross is. But it's important that we understand that it was not wrath that motivated the Father to send the Son, It is not for God so hated the world he killed his own son. It was, you know it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This was not a decision made, God, out of an enjoyment of destroying Jesus or destroying anyone. It was a decision made out of love for us. Jesus' suffering and death is not less than the exchange of our guilt for his righteousness, but it is much more than that one element. It is not God alone fulfilling the requirements for our forgiveness by putting that punishment on Christ. It is not God saving us through gritted teeth. There is more to the story. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his masterclass work, The Cost of Discipleship, explains as the difference between cheap grace, where we view it as simply a ticket to heaven, and costly grace, the grace of the cross. It's a longer quote, but I want to read it for you. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market, like cheap Jack's wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, Everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring any repentance. Baptism without any church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace though? Costly grace is a treasure hidden in a field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Jesus Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, at which the disciples lay down their nets and follow Jesus him. Costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which must, a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it will cost you your life, but it is grace because it gives a man his only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, but it is grace because it will justify the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what cost what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Let me repeat that what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his own son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. That is Jesus Christ. Jesus did not numb himself to face this trial. He faced it head on. You notice in the passage when Jesus is offered a mixture of wine and myrrh, uh, an alcoholic blend to kind of numb his mind, to take away the pain, to get his mind off what he was suffering as he died, he refuses it. And when he is invited by the crowd with mocks and jeers to step off the cross and save himself, he will not do it. He saved others, but he cannot save himself The crowd mocks him. They had it wrong. Jesus could have saved himself. He is the Lord of all creation. He could have stepped off and called down lightning on anyone who opposed him. But it was grace and love that Jesus said, I could save myself, but I will stay that I might save you. William William Barclay The founder of the Salvation Army, which we're thankful to serve right across the street from, said this. It is because Jesus did not come down from the cross that we believe in him. The religious leaders say, if you could just save yourself, we'd believe in you. But the truth and and scandal of the gospel of grace is that Jesus, in staying on the cross, saves us. Jesus would not come down, but he will rise up. On the third day, he goes through the pain of crucifixion and he will get to the joy and power and victory of resurrection. It is in this suffering that in Jesus, we see that our God can bring about victory from the worst of suffering. It is in this moment, covered in blood, mocked by the crowd, abandoned by his friends that we see that the ultimate triumph of good over evil, is not ignoring evil, pretending like evil doesn't exist, or living in a world where sin never happened. Rather, it is when the worst evil occurs, God can turn it to the greatest good. That is why we can sing when we worship as a church together, as we have over the course of this series, a cross meant to kill is my victory. A cross meant to crush and destroy has become my victory that we can proclaim that it is finished because the God of the universe looks on you and I and provides the greatest act of friendship known to humankind. John 15, 13, it's a common verse, but a beautiful one. Greater love has no man than this to lay down his life for one's friends. Jesus on the cross is a picture of friendship to you. Jesus has given you the ultimate act of friendship. Friendship. Consider how vulnerable he is. Spread. Wide open, nailed to that beam. He has given his all for you. There's nothing left to give. He has not numbed his mind or his body from the pain that he has experienced. Naked, beaten, abused, despised by the crowd. Yet he will not come down. He will not give up. He will not abandon the mission that allows you and I to be stay saved. When Jesus looked down from the cross, he does not see a faithful people. He does not see his friends who have stuck by his side. He sees a crowd casting curses at him and those he had come to save as the very ones who were crushing him under the weight of the cross. And he stayed. Why? Because God so loved the world. And what does that mean for us? It means that we follow a God who can identify with our pain. When Jesus comes back, the holes are still in his hands. I love the way the author of Hebrews puts it in chapter four, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. Chances are, if you're watching this, you know weakness you know pain. You have things in your life that have wounded you. You might have things in your life right now that are wounding you. You might be going through a season of suffering. You might be walking through what feels like the greatest pain that you've ever experienced, or you might have been marked in your life by pain that happened a long time ago. Barna Research did a study on trauma And they looked and they found that 28% of North Americans have personally experienced a form of extreme trauma in their life. That is uh, extreme violence, um, physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, or a near-death experience that produces unending fear. 15% of people um, have not themselves, but have witnessed a family member suffer this kind of trauma, and 12% of people have not witnessed a family member, but have suffered a friend or an acquaintance witness um, have this kind of trauma. And that's just the extreme examples, right? That, that's not even taking into the account the sudden death of a loved one, the, the loss of a child, loss of employment, the, the crushing of your dreams, sickness struggle, a diagnosis you weren't ready for, a marriage that you thought would last forever that ended, a relationship with your kids that you just can't seem to mend, something that's been done to you or said to you that has marked you and try as we might. You cannot bury it. Our history, our woundedness goes on in our lives with us. As one pastor put it, Jesus lives in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. We're marked by our families of origin and the things that have been done to us and said to us that we've experienced. We are marked for our lives by what has happened and the suffering that we face, the pain of those words, the actions of that person, the the place that we were meant to be safe and we weren't safe. The betrayal of that loved one, the loss of our dignity, whatever it may be for you, our pain becomes our identity. And in our heart, we carry the overwhelming burden of shame. We carry that shame on us. Whether it's something we've done or something that's been done to us, we carry this idea that this thing, this wound, means we are not worthy of love means we could never be healed. means that God doesn't care, that we're irredeemable, that we're too broken, that we're too far gone. But what I want you to know today as we close is that Jesus does not just care about those things, he understands them. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Jesus was abandoned. Jesus was alone and left by his friends on that cross. Jesus was beaten. Jesus was struck and spit upon. And things that were done to his body that should not be done to a human body that is made in the image of God were done to him. Jesus was mocked by everyone around him. Everyone spoke ill of him. Everyone was jeering him and taunting him. If you've been mocked, Jesus understands it. Jesus was left utterly alone in his suffering. Jesus was stripped naked and put in a place he should not have been. Jesus knows the pain of suffering. The God we serve Understands. In Jesus, we see a suffering that does not have no purpose, but rather a suffering that can be turned by the power of the Holy Spirit to work for the greatest good in human history. That God could turn what's done for evil and take it and turn it for good. That the most broken, wounded parts of your story could be the very place that God wants to do something amazing, that you might see his grace, that you might see see his mercy that the people around you the world around you might see his mercy and what you need to know today is that you are free Because of Jesus' death on the cross, for your sins, for your shame, for your guilt, for your trauma, for your woundedness, you have been set free. You don't have to hide your pain. You don't have to hide your sin. You don't have to pretend like all is well. Because of Jesus, you have been made clean. We're about to sing a song that invokes these words from Isaiah 1. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be made white as snow. Though they are crimson red, They will be like wool. Through what Jesus has done, you and I have been made clean. Clean of all that has marked us. Clean of all that has tried to define us. Our souls and our bodies set free from the burden of trauma that we've experienced. And so we can bring our full selves to the cross and know that Jesus welcomes us there covered in our brokenness and our sin and our pain and our suffering and lay them before Jesus and know that Jesus can actually do something about it. That is what changes everything. Not just when we die, but right now in this moment, it's not cheap grace. It's costly. It costs Jesus everything, but he said It was worth it. He would give everything to save us. Not in a clean, sanitary, religious bubble of believing the right things and going to the right church, but in the muck, the mire, the blood and the spit in which our Savior took our place. In the words of Henry Nouwen, our Messiah comes, not after all our misery and pain, but right in the middle of it. That is what the cross is about and that is the power in which we have been saved. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice in your cross. We rejoice in your body broken and your blood shed. We rest, Lord Jesus, in your words, it is finished. That all our sin, that all our guilt, that all our shame has been pinned on that tree. That you carried it, that you became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. and We rest in that truth right now, Jesus. God, I pray for those listening to this. God, that if they're carrying things they feel like they can't bring to you, would you show them, Lord Jesus, that you can carry it. Indeed, you already have. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice on our behalf and in our place. We worship you as the only true and holy God, as our Messiah, who has won the victory, not through violence to others, but allowing violence to be done to himself. We thank you, Jesus, that you laid down your life for us. As we head towards Easter, we reflect on that, we remember that, and we rejoice in that truth. By his wounds, we have been healed. Thank you, Jesus, for your wounds. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.